Blog Talk Radio. This is Gregory Dunkling, and you're listening to the Business of Craft Beer Blog Talk Radio Show. We're coming to you from Burlington, Vermont. I'd like to introduce today's guest, Tom Acatelli, author of The Audacity of Hops, The History of America's Craft Beer Revolution. But first, let me set the stage for today's discussion. With a number of U.S. craft breweries exploding from just eight in 1980 to over 4,300 as of 2016, many are asking whether this growth is sustainable. Over the summer, we'll examine this important topic in a series, Bubble or Sustainable Growth, examining today's craft beer industry. We'll talk with suppliers of all sizes, distributors and industry economists and analysts. Today's discussion with Tom will focus on the mid-1990s, which started a rather tumultuous 10-year period in craft beer's history. A shakeout occurred uh, where we lost many breweries, and today, consumers and industry professionals alike are often heard asking whether the conditions aren't ripe for another shakeout. Does craft histories during this first downturn in the industry portend what may occur in the future? Or has the industry changed dramatically over the past 15 to 20 years? And if so, how? First, a few numbers. Craft breweries in all categories, brew pubs, regional breweries, and microbreweries grew from under 10 in 1980 to nearly 800 by 1995. And from 95 to 2000, the industry nearly doubled to over 1,500 breweries. And then there was a decline, a total loss of 115 craft breweries until 2005, where craft breweries in all categories totaled 1,394. It took until 2008 to get back to the 1,500 mark. Microbreweries defined as producing less than 15,000 barrels of beer per year struggled the most throughout this 98 through 2005 period where over 70 breweries closed. I'd like now to welcome today's guest, Tom Acatelli, author of The Audacity of Hops, The History of America's Craft Beer Revolution. Tom has written widely about beer, including as the history columnist for All About Beer magazine and the beer critic for foodrepublic.com. He has written about beer for the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, eater.com, and Bloomberg View. He resides in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We invite listeners to join the conversation. The phone lines are open, and you're welcome to call us at 929-477-1757. So welcome, Tom. In your book, uh, The Audacity of Hops, you chronicle the rise of the craft beer industry with fascinating stories about the people who really Uh, made this industry over the past 25 to 30 years. Tom will be be with us for the first two segments of Blog Talk Radio Show as we examine the topic bubble or sustainable growth. I'm sure you've heard, uh, Tom, many people ask whether industry staff or consumers is the tremendous expansion of the craft beer industry sustainable or are we likely to experience a shakeout? Everywhere I go, it seems the same question is being raised. Perhaps we've all simply become accustomed to being on the lookout for the next bubble in our economy. 
I'd like to take you and our listeners back to the mid-1990s, where forces were at work leading to a true contraction in the craft beer space. Describe for our listeners what was taking place during this period from the mid-1990s to 2005 that resulted in a number of brewery closings. Well, there was rapid growth in both the number of breweries, number of craft breweries, and the market share that those craft breweries breweries were claiming in the overall American beer marketplace. Now, that market share never really rose into the double-digit percentages. I mean, uh, then as now, Miller, Anheuser-Busch, et cetera, were brewing most of the beer that most Americans bought. But the number of brews is multiplying. Uh, it went from about, you know, under 20 in the mid-1980s to, to what you said, uh, you know, toward 1,500 by the mid-1990s. Uh, there was a particular boom in the number of brew pubs as well, which was a fairly new phenomenon dating only from the early 1980s, at least in the United States. There were, there were older ones in Canada, but down here it was, uh, it was fairly recent. And so you have this sort of... Uh, is this, this growth in the number of breweries and in market share, and you have more craft brands on the market than ever before, and you just it's a lot of people getting into the game, as it were, and they're getting into the game because of two particular craft brewing companies, Pete's, Pete's Brewing Company, the maker of Pete's Wicked Ale, which is no longer around, but some of your listeners will probably, some of your older listeners will probably remember the brand, and the Boston Beer Companies. Samuel Adams, which then is now was seen to be everywhere. And people looked at these examples, people outside the industry, and thought, well, I can get in on that. Because why? Because these two particular companies were not, did not have physical breweries back then. They brewed under contract with other breweries that were operating under capacity. So a lot of people jump in. And so the growth swells even more. And a lot of the people, the newer entrants, you know, some of the beer is quite iffy in quality. Uh, it's getting more and more sort of outrageous in, in its uh, marketing. And basically, long story short, although it is a very fascinating story because it, it combines sort of a social trends and business trends in the U.S., but long story short, for our purposes here, it, it basically crashes. Um, as you said, you know, uh, uh, dozens of breweries go out of business. Uh, maybe as, as many as one-third of the craft breweries and brew pubs in the U.S. at that time, 1999 to 2001, 2002, went out of business, uh, sometimes abruptly and often heavily in debt. Uh, the market it was just not there, okay? And a lot of the beer that was, that was being introduced was just not of quality. And so I think a lot of consumers just kind of turned away. You know, they, they bought one too many six-packs or one too many pints that was not up to snuff and worth the premium. Uh, Tom, let me let me uh, also um, uh, the section of your book you talked about NBC's Dateline story, mm-hmm. which was I believe in 1996. Right. Um, that sort of cast a, a dark cloud on the industry. Uh, again, back to the contract brewing model of the industry during that time by the two leading breweries. Could you tell that story, please? Sure, sure. That's a huge that's a huge milestone. What we're talking about. Uh, so the, the, the number of breweries was multiplying, and the, and the market share was growing. Okay, Now, again, it was infinitesimal compared with the likes of Miller and Anheuser-Busch, but it was growing. So the bigger breweries got nervous, okay? And Anheuser-Busch in particular went head-to-head with some of these newer operations. And, of course, they pick the biggest craft operation of all, which then is now was uh, Boston Beer Company, maker of Sam Adams. And they 
Now, it's not entirely clear whether they actually orchestrated the NBC Dateline piece in October, as October 13, 1996. But Anheuser-Busch was a major NBC advertiser, including at the Olympic Games in Atlanta that, uh, that year. And Anheuser-Busch uh, executives appear on during the segment as sort of the aggrieved party. And what were they aggrieved about? Well, Boston Beer was brewing its Samuel Adams brand under contract in uh, various breweries in, uh, I think it was Pennsylvania at the time, Ohio. They weren't brewing it in Boston. They had a pilot brewery there, and they still do. It's lovely. But they were not brewing any beers for commercial sale there. That was bare metal batches then. And so Anheuser-Busch and NBC take Boston Beer to task for essentially uh, they accuse them of deceiving, deceiving the public, of misrepresenting where their beers come from, and, of course, raising the question, why would you pay a premium for this brand when it's made at the same, same places as the likes of Stroh's, for instance, the old Stroh's brand, the really, the really cheapo beer. Uh, and that, caught, that cast a pall over everybody, whether they were contract brewers, they, whether they owned a physical craft brewery, wherever they were in the country, it only it added, it, it placed significant doubt in consumers' minds about uh, the, the origins of craft beer and whether it was worth it and whether it really was a distinct trend in, in uh, the United States in food and drink. And I think it's important for your, for your listeners, especially the younger ones, to sort of go back, to sort of stop and, and realize how the reach of, uh, of NBC's Dateline. It was a primetime show back then meant to go head-to-head with 60 Minutes on CBS. And this was a, this was a time right before, you know, these uh, – uh, thousand-channel cable packages and, and online streaming and all that. So a lot of people, I forget the exact number, but it was, it was reaching into millions and millions of households. I think it was 8 million households. So a lot of people saw this segment, and it had an almost immediate impact on, on sowing doubt. And, of course, I would add um, Anheuser-Busch kept up its, its sort of assault, if you will, on Sam Adams in particular and Boston Beer, you know, they they, uh, they went after them on uh, uh, listing the origins of, of the, the actual beer on the labels. They went after them for claiming that they were making this sort of best beer in America. Um, it, it really, you know, uh, they, they put the distribution squeeze on other smaller brewers by basically telling their, distribution, their distributors and their distribution networks to only carry, to, to, to focus on Anheuser-Busch brands. Yeah, we're going to definitely get into that in a minute because uh, that's mm-hmm. that's certainly an important uh, component uh, and had an impact for a number of years. Um, you write about the Phantom Craft and regional microbreweries uh, being acquired by Anheuser Busch, Miller, and others. Uh, you think of Red Wolf and Pacific Reef mm-hmm. Brands and Coors Blue Moon, craft uh, knockoffs, as many called them. Uh, many accuse big beer is uh, attempting to absorb or mimic the craft trend. And how did this ultimately impact the industry? Right. Well, that, that's happening again now on a much grander scale, and everybody thinks it's new. But as you said, it's, it's, it actually has its roots in the, in the 80s and uh, late, very late 80s, especially in the 1990s, where they essentially, the bigger beer companies were just trying to co-opt, you know, both the style and what I call the vibe kind of, of these smaller brands. So they would – come out with a slightly hoppier uh, uh, brand and or, or a brand that uh, harkened back to an, old, an older European style like uh, wheat beer or something like that. 
and they would slap on, you know, pictures of a uh, mountain stream and uh, deer at the mountain stream and, you know, cast mountain, snow-capped mountains in the background to try to capture this kind of, this, this craft ethos, right, and, and hiding behind a new brand name that might not have on the packaging any mention of where the brewery, uh, of where the beer <laughs> actually came from and that it was made by a bigger operation. Um, the best example is, uh, or the most successful example, because several of these just failed. They just petered out. They just did not work because they didn't have the taste. And so the, um, the breweries dropped them, and plus some of these just never really sold. And when you're at Anheuser-Busch and Miller, you want things to sell. You're not going to keep making these, these sort of small, much smaller case runs. It's just not worth it. Um, but the one that was really successful and took off, it was a 96 uh, Coors's Blue Moon which was a wheat beer recipe developed in uh, core at, at, I think it was core the baseball stadium in Denver at a, a pilot brewery there and basically spilled onto, you know, shelves in 40 States almost overnight and became this kind of phenomenon. And it really took off. And, you know, if you look at the packaging, even today, it doesn't mention that it's, uh, you know, cores is behind it or was behind it then. So these, these phantom crafts were an attempt to sort of co-op, the growth and it's only continued and so yeah, we'll have a, the next show we're definitely going to be talking some about that because of the the rapid merger and acquisition uh, market in uh, over the last few years uh, so we'll definitely touch on that uh, in the next show um, I wanted to go back to your your mention of Anheuser-Busch and distribution uh, it seemed that one of the huge issues was distribution for a market that was growing rapidly, um, and the, it seemed like that the fragile infrastructure to get craft products to, to market were were an issue. Um, and then Anheuser Busch comes along with their 100% share of mine mm-hmm. policy. Uh, tell us, uh, tell the listeners how how this played out and how it impacted the industry. Well, August Bush, uh, I think it was August Bush the fourth, who was then leading the company that his, his great grandfather started or co-founded. Uh, was giving a talk, was giving a speech to a convention of distributorship, distributors and wholesalers, and basically said, you know, um, something along the lines of, "We would like you to focus on our brands, and keep in mind that if you're focusing on other brands, we know that you're not giving 100% of your mind share to our brands." And it was a thinly veiled and uh, very well understood, yet very well understood threat against distributors. You know, they, they, the message was clear. They could lose Anheuser-Busch business if they did not focus mostly on Anheuser-Busch products. And Anheuser-Busch products then as now accounted for a huge, huge uh, portion of the American beer marketplace. So that this what was called 100% share of mind put the squeeze on already limited distribution outlets, for, especially for smaller craft operations. Uh, they had that much more trouble expanding into newer markets and getting what they had already out to existing markets. And that really, I mean, distribution already is difficult enough for, for any, for any alcohol in the U S and, you know, there's something called the three tier system, which basically um, puts, puts an entity, whether it's the the government or, or a, a private distributor in between the producer and the retailer and the consumer. Um, so 
this only added to the 100% share of my opinion, Heiser Bush, which launched, I believe, in 1996, only added to the, the, the difficulty that particularly smaller craft operations had in getting the product to market. And that, too, I think, contributed quite a bit to the, to the shakeout that came. Um, it was just harder to get, so, you know, more expensive. So. Right. You you had mentioned earlier that that there was uh, too much beer and too little demand uh, during this uh, this period. Um, obviously, the the rapid growth of number of breweries um, and was was the demand there yet for for craft? Um, mm. Can you talk a little bit more about that during this uh, ten year period or so? Sure, sure, sure. If you take yourself back to then, I know, I know some of your listeners aren't probably old enough to, to be drinking in 1996, 97, 98, but, you know, you look at your, you know, a typical, say, supermarket shelf or, or uh, a grocery store shelf, and a lot of the brands are going to look unfamiliar because craft, uh, you know, there was the big guys, they're accounting for most, most of the shelf space, okay, and, and most of the prime space, so the space at eye level, you know, the displays at the end of the aisle, et cetera. Uh, the smaller guys, they don't advertise. Most, the vast majority never advertised. There was only there were one or two exceptions. And they don't really market in a traditional way, okay? A lot of it's spreading by word of mouth or, you know, uh, really basic marketing. Um, in some cases, the brewers themselves going out into the public and holding events and such. So it's not, you know, there's an unfamiliarity there with the product already. At the same time, too, because, you know, there, there was nothing like there is today in, in terms of social media and sharing over, over social media platforms such as Twitter and Facebook. Uh, back then, you know, you might learn about a craft operations backstory from a newspaper article in the local newspaper. Again, it was very widely read. This is before the Internet, uh, but before the Internet really took off, the World Wide Web. And so... There's an unfamiliarity with the product. The product's not is already sort of nudged out of prime prime retail space, and it's and it costs more than the six pack of Bud or Miller, etc. So there just wasn't the understanding of what was out there then. Also, when it came to uh, style, you know, the the the, the reigning style was a sort of watery bastardization of Pilsner from the Czech, you know, which was born in the Czech Republic. Uh, a couple hundred years ago about um, that that is the style that you know most Americans they would think oh that's beer you know Budweiser is beer Miller Lite is beer so you're putting out these styles that some craft breweries were putting out you know the, the India Pale Ale a porter a stout uh, you know a bitter a holiday winter porter something you know something ornate like that uh, they're not going to know what it is and again because of the technology back then, the lack of, of, of social media, the lack of, um, you know, widespread use of the World Wide Web, which itself only dated from the early 1990s, you know, they, they don't, the consumers don't have access to the information to understand what they're looking at if they can even get to, get to see it. So, and also I would add, too, you know, at the time in the 90s, uh, homebrewing was illegal. Uh, in, in many in many states, it was legalized at the federal level, but there were all sorts of restrictions in various states. Now it's legal yeah. in every state as of 2013. So, I remember back then, uh, 
you know, sort of uh, those of us who were looking for products beyond what Big Beer offered, we would we would turn to Europe or even Canada in some right. in some cases to to purchase beer. But when you reflect back on that time, those products were pretty mainstream. They were just you know maybe a little mm-hmm. little variation on what B- Big Beer was making. Um, and then fast right. forward to today and look at all of the styles and the the creativity in the industry. And boy, it tells you a lot about how the consumer tastes have changed over, over that period. Right, right. I mean, I, I think just back then, you know, people, you had to be introduced to it. You had to have somebody say, and there's all sorts of stories about this, uh, anecdotal stories about people actually being introduced by a relative or a friend or, or, or whomever saying, you know, you really have to try this. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, commercial brewers today who, who were introduced to craft beer the same way. You know, they were in college in the 90s, uh, and somebody said, here, try this. You know, it, yeah. it, it was not, especially when you got beyond the largest cities in the United States, the larger metro areas, the 10 or, 10 or 15 largest metro areas, it, it was a desert for beer. It really was. Sure. Yeah, Let, let's uh, bring in a few callers here. Uh, please um, welcome to the show, and what's your name, and where are you calling from? Yes, hello, go ahead. Hi. Hi. So, um my name is Brittany. I'm um I'm actually calling in from Burlington, Vermont as well. Um and I thank you so much, Tom and Greg. This has been super informative. Um and I just I just had a quick question for you guys. Um so in comparing the 1990s with today, um has consumer demand really been able to keep pace with craft products? I mean, I understand that there were a lot of people who never were beer consumers, but kind of as a result of today's high-quality craft market, there's now like a huge craft fan base. So, you know, getting back to the bubble question, are you concerned that the industry is growing too fast, or do you think the growth is just about right? Hmm. I would think that the the, – thanks for the question. That's a very good question, and it comes up a lot – I would think that it's actually keeping pace. Uh, The numbers show that, that the growth, what's happening now, what's been happening since about 2007, 2008, is that the sort of market share growth of craft beer is growing, sometimes by double digits. I think last year the Brewers Association, the main trade group for smaller brewers, said it was something like 16% growth, or it might even be higher than that. and that, while, while craft, craft beer's market share is growing by these these, these large percentages, uh, the beer market overall is flat or declining slightly. So, you know, people are drinking more, uh, you know, IPAs and porters and such and drinking far less uh, Miller Lite, Bud Light, et cetera. So a hard number suggests that the demand is keeping pace and, and will and uh, will will keep pace and, and will support the, the newer entrants. But, you know, there's always going to be some that don't make it. But right now, I think the net, there hasn't been, since the, middle, since the end of the last decade, it's basically been net growth. In other words, a lot more are opening than are, than are closing. I mean, a lot more. Uh, the Brewers Association now uh, estimates that there's about two new craft breweries opening every day in the United States, if you can believe it. Um, where I'm talking, where, where I am in Cambridge, I mean, there's, there's one literally opening down the street and then one uh, a short walk, maybe two miles from me opening. And they're both opening within a couple months of each other. So uh, the, the thing they, they do have to fear, I think, is a kind of um, style saturation. You know, too many IPAs, too many of one type of beer out there. But I, I think they're diversifying enough. So, 
Great. Let's uh, bring in another caller. Uh, hello. Welcome to the show. What's your name and where are you calling from? Oh, hi. My name is Mark. I'm calling from Boston. How are you guys? Good. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks for calling. Hey, hey Tom. Uh, oh, you're welcome. I, I was listening. I actually just picked up your book, Tom. I'm excited to read it. I'm excited to hear that you were on the uh, show. Um, th- my question really is about craft beer, and I've been drinking craft beer for a while now. Um, and, I re- you know, I remember back in the day, there was some inconsistencies with kind of uneven tasting. There were some beers that I found that were really good um, and some that not so good by today's standards, uh, if you'd want to call it. I drank some lousy beers in my day. Was this a factor, do you think, in slow consumer growth uh, in the early days of the craft beer? Maybe that's why it was a little bit slower to, uh, to kind of catch on. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely do. And I think it was more acute even, you know, the, the late 90s, the shakeout in the late 90s had a lot to do with that, the equality from the newer entrants. But I, I think even going back to this, the 70s and 80s, there was uh, the, the, not, not even just when I say equality, I mean sort of a lack of uniformity and quality control and every beer sort of looking the same and tasting the same. Because uh, that's what people want. You know, it's supposed to be a consistency. It's not like a, a vintage of fine wine, say, when you pop it open, it's going to be different than the vintage from the year before. Um, so, yeah, definitely, I, I think that contributed to the slow growth, the fact of uh, there wasn't consistent quality across the board. And I, and I you know, sitting in Boston, I would give uh, a lot of props to Boston Beer because their Samuel Adams Boston Lager beginning in the mid-'80s was just consistently good. Right? And for the book, I talked to a lot of people back then who were in the industry and themselves consumers. And they said, you know, when that thing landed, when Sam Adams Boston Lager landed, and it was, it was always – it tasted the same, and I mean that in a good way, and it, it looked the same, you know, wherever it ended up in the United States, it was kind of a, a benchmark to measure other craft beer brands by. There were few few uh, operations able to pull that off before. I mean, I think Anchor in San Francisco is a very good example, Sierra Nevada. But uh, San Adams Boston Lager was kind of a watershed as far as quality control. So you raise an interesting point, uh, Tom. Um, it's one thing to create a great product. Uh, it's another thing to consistently make that product uh, and it, it seemed that in those early days, that was one of the issues, uh, today yeah. less so. Uh, but, but, uh, I think we all experienced those of us who were craft beer consumers in the nineties and perhaps into the, into the mid, uh, two thousands. Um, there was some inconsistency of product, uh, which probably did influence consumer behavior. Sure. Sure. And I think what's, what's happened now is, is uh, some of the technology has caught up, but also the training. The, the training has vastly expanded, and you're having a lot of people come with uh, really good backgrounds into the industry. So. Yeah, speaking of which, uh, the University of Vermont, uh, a little plug here for mm-hmm. our Business of Craft Beer Certificate Program. Uh, we uh, offer a program that focuses on the business side of the industry. It's not about brewing, but it's about just about everything else of how do you get the, the product to market uh, successfully, uh, marketing, sales, and, and business operations. Uh, so we'll uh, give you information about that uh, as well. Um, I wanted to go to the um, 70 per breweries. It was probably many more than that. Uh, we had those numbers sometimes were a little distorted because uh, if you look at the aggregate numbers those years, uh, it didn't reflect the number of new entrants into the industry uh, minus those that were closing. Um, so as you mentioned, many breweries were closing during that, that five, six, seven year period. Um, 
but uh, it seemed that some uh, fell prey to to what you describe in your book as bad timing or expanding rapidly, uh, just as the market mm-hmm. was taking taking a, a dip. Um, uh, you described Catamount Brewing uh, mm-hmm. here, of course, the first brewery in Vermont, um, near and dear to our hearts. Uh, Frederick Brewing uh, Company in Maryland, both examples of uh, breweries offering excellent products, uh, yet they expanded dramatically just as the craft beer market was in decline. Um, was this a case of just taking on too much debt during a period of slow or non-existent consumer demand? I think it was that and the fact that they tried to expand too rapidly. And they're just you're right, there just was not the demand for the product there. And, you know, coupled with everything, the, the, the distribution challenges, the uh, sort of uh, slow vice that Big Beer had set and <laughs> squeezing for these guys, uh, I, I do think... Quite a few operations came in thinking they would be the next Sam Adams. Uh, you know, they, they, Sam Adams made it look kind of easy. And they, they just, these, these guys simply weren't. They, they, they had bad timing, yes, but it was a, a move to rapidly expand that I think really, really doomed them because the demand was not there and, they, you know, they couldn't scale up. And as any brewer will tell you, it's a very capital-intensive business. You have to keep getting more equipment, getting more more supplies, and the whole time you're looking for more distribution, and, and it, it all has to line up, and it didn't for these guys. Uh, I think after the shakeout, you know, and, and I've, I heard this from brewers that I talked to for the book, a lot of them sort of contracted their, the ones that survived, they, they sort of looked closer to home. And so instead of, say, trying to go national, they went, they focused on the northeast or the northwest, or if they weren't focusing regionally, they focused locally, you know. And I think that's paid off for some of these guys because they started to grow again. Yeah. Great. Um, I'm going to bring another caller in. Uh, 919, go ahead. Uh, where are you calling from and what's your name? Hi, uh, my name is Steve. I'm from uh, Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, always been fascinated with craft beer and uh, loved it. Uh, I started out with a beautiful Vermont beer of uh, Magic Hat number no. 9 in college. And uh, since then, I've been all over drinking craft beer from all these great uh, brewers. The uh, question I had was, I was wondering what your thought was on possibly, you know, a, I was looking at a possible career change and, and thinking about getting into the industry. Just wanted to, your thoughts on how strong, and I guess, uh, of a field you think it is and, and what areas do you think would be great with a great demand? Hmm. Uh, I think it's a very strong industry right now. And I, like I said, I, I don't see it uh, repeating what happened at the end of the 1990s, beginning of the 2000s, I, I, I see craft, the craft beer market share only growing, especially stylistically. Uh, there are a lot of, you know, Anheuser-Busch, uh, Miller, a lot of the, the bigger operations are buying up the smaller guys. Uh, but stylistically, I think we've turned a corner where, you know, in about within the next 20, 25 years, you're going to see the sort of, long slow fade of that bastardized pilsner the bud the budweisers the miller lights and i think you're going to see the rise into the ever more into the mainstream of of ipas and porters and 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 pale ales and stouts and the like so stylistically i think it's healthy industry-wise it's very healthy the financing climate's very good for these guys uh the you know there's some some will not make it uh but I, I can't see. I just don't see it having the same dramatic, you know, ending that we label a shakeout today uh, happening again. And I would mm-hmm. also add that, you know, 
Well, the shorthand is to say that, you know, craft beer accounts for about whatever, you know, I forget, I forget the actual percentage, but ten around 10% of the market right now. Um, in some parts of the country, you know, some areas, the Northwest, where I am in New England, um, they, they account for far more, you know. Right, yeah. Most, I, I would venture that, you know, in some areas – most of the beer sold is a, is a craft brand, or at least a, you know a, a style we would associate with craft beer. So. Mhm, mhm. It's it's huge. Even even down here in the southeast, uh, you go oh, into sure. a local grocery store and they've got you you, you know you can fill your keg or I'm sorry your growler with you know four or five different beer stations and and there's a whole wall now dedicated to craft beer and there's a, a ton of uh, brewers here in uh, North Carolina. Sure. I, I grew up in Charlotte, actually. I just want a quick anecdote. When I, I left Charlotte, it's in Mecklenburg County in North Carolina. Uh, I left in 1997. There were, there were no breweries or brew pubs. Uh, and now there's something like 20, so 20, less than 20 years later. So it's kind of wow. simple. It, it is. It's fantastic. <laughs> Thanks for your call, Steve. Thank you. And I'll take uh, one more call here, uh, 9303. Go ahead. Yes, hi, this is Chris from Colchester, Vermont. And I just had a quick question in regards to the Phantom breweries um, or Phantom beers. Um, and what was interesting to me is I read a book recently on the history of bourbon in the U.S., and they talked a lot about um, companies coming in at one point in really probably the 90s and more even recently um, and really developing um, or trying to develop stories and packaging that really kind of spoke home to the um, home-based uh you know, locations and to really trying to generate stories behind the, the brand and they weren't always necessarily legit. And I was wondering if that was an issue for some of the bigger breweries like Anheuser-Busch where they were trying to kind of promote, um, you know, sort of exaggerating the story about the history of the brewery, like I've seen with Blue Moon, like they kind of speak to it a little bit. And I'm wondering if that's something that continues to be an issue maybe today as some of these breweries try to acquire um, smaller breweries if they're trying to really work on the, the story behind it and try to capitalize on that story of being a more hometown-based brewery. Oh, yeah, yeah, I definitely think that's the case. I mean, the recent acquisitions by the bigger breweries, they're basically leaving the backstory alone and the marketing alone. They're basically going in, buying them, and and they, they might make personnel changes, and, of course, they, they expand distribution and marketing and, and public relations and so forth, but they are leaving the, the actual – they want the consumer – to continue to believe that this brewery is operating as it always has operated. They, they would not touch that because that's a huge part uh, of the success today of craft beer is the perception uh, of what, you know, of, of what people are buying. People buy the, they buy the story as well as the product. So that I, I seems to be one of the differences, Tom, from, from, you know, today versus that period, um, with Phantom Beer is it seems that, you know, whether it's Heineken purchasing 50% of Lagunitas, but leaving management in place or recent uh, uh, venture capital group acquiring uh, Cigar City or Founders, mm-hmm. or you can go right through the whole list of, of, of the better known uh, national uh, craft breweries. Um, they, they, there's the lesson that they seem to have learned is, is leave well enough alone, leave management mm-hmm. in place, leave, leave the backstory uh, intact. Uh, seems that like consumers are really focused a lot on authenticity. And if it doesn't feel authentic, then they'll move on to other more authentic brands. Right. 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 And I think it also just, you know, it fits in with the artisanal uh, slow food, whatever you want to call it, local movement 
in, in food and drink in the United States in general. Uh, just people want they they want to buy the experience and the backstory as well as the, as the product. And I think craft beer, you know, is is right there. It's like it's like the perfect point. And a lot, and I just want to hasten to add, a lot of it is very authentic, and the stories are real, and the people are real behind them. Yeah, we're definitely in our next show. Uh, we'll be talking about some of the implications of these uh, mergers and acquisitions. Um, you know, is it a is it a positive for the industry? Does it does it suggest that um, uh, you know big money is chasing after successful breweries and that's a good thing, or uh, will it taint the the brands? Will it inf- influence what we call craft beer? Um, if you're too large. Uh, uh, in the minds of the consumers, will they move away from those uh, national, um, you know, larger craft breweries uh, in favor of, of more local products? I guess time will tell, um, but mm-hmm. we'll get into that a bit more in a couple of weeks. Um, uh, so, uh, Tom, I want to thank you for uh, this valuable retrospective look at craft beer's uh, tumultuous 1990s into, I guess, up to 2005. Uh, on June 21st, we'll examine the meteoric rise of the uh, number of craft breweries that took place between 2006 and today uh, and assess the state of today's craft industry. Um, as I mentioned, uh, some of the issues are mergers and acquisitions or the VC firms that are entering this space um, and, and big beer buying their way into the craft space again. Um, the size of these breweries um, and even the definition, we'll get into some of the definition mm-hmm. issues and challenges of today. Uh, um, what is what is craft beer? Um, in, in the meanwhile, uh, we invite our listeners to continue the discussion on the business of craft beer um, uh, Facebook page, uh, and uh, we will send the information to you on on that uh, and where to find it. Um, and uh, thank you, Tom, for your time today. And we look forward to our next session on June 21st, uh, uh, and uh, be sure to visit your local breweries. Thank you. All right. Take care. We'll be in touch. Take care.